Hello and welcome to the Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. We're continuing today with the last of the section on abandoning ship. This is from the RYA Sea Survival Handbook by Keith Colwell. Absolutely brilliant text and link in the description to your copy of it. Um, the book is something they say is worth having on board the boat. And my understanding is always to leave it in the toilet, in the head, wherever you may be. Get a copy, put it there, because people get bored and uh, and read whatever's in front of them. Now, that doesn't necessarily always work ashore because now everyone's on the phone, of course. So you have to make podcasts about it. But previously, you could just leave the book in the toilet and then everyone would understand within a week. Um, this book is uh, has been quite surprising, I think, in the depth of the, uh, the knowledge that's imparted here. And... Uh, the um, diagrams and everything that are in here are very, very clear. It's a, it's a great uh, thing to have, perhaps, in the packaging for your life raft if you're able to get it packed in there um, when you get the life raft serviced. So um, finishing up the chapter here about going into the life raft, and then we'll include in this also a short section that comes thereafter about rescue communication, um, something which definitely I've seen on the back of every toilet door in any MCA craft I've ever been on, and those little orange um, picture cards. I don't know, they've got a particular number, haven't they? Maybe I'll look it up by the end of the podcast that you can order them. You have to have them if you've got a SOLAS compliant vessel and you sit there for hours <laughs> looking at them going, Jesus, you know, of course the airplane will rock its wings and indicate the direction of travel. Doesn't anybody know that? Of course they don't. You, you need to have a little muscle memory on this stuff. So we'll go through it here and uh, tidy out this, uh, this section on abandoning ship. And the next bit in the next podcast will be about um, getting rescued, which um, can be in its own way, uh, its own kind of risk. Because obviously, if you're going up the sides of some massive container ship that's come to get you or being lifted clear of the ground uh, into a helicopter, that may well be the first time that you've ever experienced anything like that. And the chance of it going wrong are quite high. So uh, <laughs> stick around for that one. It's going to be a real uh, page turner. OK, so what have we got here now? Uh, abandoning ship. So we're in the life raft. We have concluded at the end of the last one that um, that fresh water is indeed the nemesis of the uh, of the life raft survivor. Um, but if you're getting along with the water, then food is going to become quite important. So we'll read on a little bit, and then I'll add in uh, narration as we go. So uh, catching food boosts the survivor's emotional and physical well-being. Foods higher in complex carbohydrates are more suitable than protein food such as meat and fish. So use your salvaged supplies first. Protein draws water from the body while it is being digested. Ideally, the body needs just a little over a litre of water a day to digest food and dispose of waste matter. If no water is available, the survivor should not eat as this will accelerate dehydration. If food is contained in the life raft pack, it will be high energy carbohydrate, similar to a block of dried porridge. Oh my Lord, yes. Okay, so there's quite a lot there, but let's just get it out of the way. It's the largest thing we literally have to read on this page. Um, catching food boosts survivors' emotional and physical well-being. Very, very important. Always, this is the thing, it's looking after the psychology. It's probably more important than looking after the water. Uh, if you can get on top of the water, a lot of the psychological stress has gone away. If you can get on top of the food thing, then you've really got the kind of trifecta, a little bit of shelter, a little bit of warmth, and, and you'll make it quite a long way. So um, food always on a boat is something that can make or break the day. You can have a really hard day on the boat, have a fantastic meal and all is forgiven. And you can have a really great meal on a boat and it comes to a kind of wet fart of a meal at the end of the day and just everyone goes to bed and sailing sucks. Right. So uh, food is very much connected to our emotions. And um, it might be for some people the very first time they've had to really get hold of the thing that they're going to then eat um, in its live form and render it uh, edible. And uh, again, the greatest challenge probably your seamanship will ever experience is being in the one boat that you have no experience of and haven't done any training for so not only do you have to survive in an inflatable boat that you've blown up because your other boat couldn't take it you also have to now become like a warrior monk just staying very positive and catching fish through the little canvas portal on the front of the thing like let's be honest 
it's a pretty desperate situation, isn't it? If you're catching your food, like in modern everyday life, we are very separated from where our food comes from. Where I'm living now in Nova Scotia, my partner Kat, her family have always hunted. I have been pretty Disney up until now, I've got to say, with uh, how I dealt with food. I had a period of time that I was vegetarian, <laughs> which came to a crashing end with a, a giant bloody steak. Um, but I did try working on the basis that I have to deal with the um, the moral dilemma between the fact that I do eat meat, but I take no part in what's going on. I take no responsibility for how it ends up on my plate. I tried being a vegetarian. That didn't work. So I've gone the other way and I'm starting to now understand more about and become more involved in the procurement of meat in a legal hunting sense here in Canada, which uh, is tiptoeing around the edge of the fact that for the first time last year, Kat and her brother went and uh, took a, a small deer and then I wasn't involved in the initial parts of it, but when he got back to the house and needed uh, butchering, I was suddenly uh, involved in that way of life, which is a pretty ancient way of life. And I have to say, having never done it before, it was kind of shocking. Um, and uh, But it is the same level of reality that you face when you're on a boat at sea, because the the reality is, if it goes wrong, it goes very seriously wrong, right? And it could end in not just a uh, a trumpet blast in the West and that's the end, but like days and days drawn out on a life raft in a very, very difficult situation. So I think sailing is about grasping hold of the real and, uh, and taking responsibility for it and being independent. Um, in one of the podcasts I just did recently, we started mentioning for the first time the <laughs> revelation that uh, sailboats and prepping have got a lot in common when you think about it. <laughs> like that's the ultimate bug out vessel. But it's uh, it's all of those things are about um, trying to take responsibility. When it gets to the point when you're in a life raft and you're actually hunting for the food that's going to sustain life, um, you want to hope that you've actually got some muscle memory and some knowledge about how this goes down. Otherwise, you could go from like full Disney to full dead really fast. So I'm, I'm, it's something I'm learning. Um, it's uh, it, it's challenging emotionally, but as I say I'd rather grasp the real and understand it and, uh, and have the skill set if anything were to ever befall me at sea or on land and uh, and know how to procure myself the protein that's required by my diet because it certainly isn't coming any other way. Um, <laughs> so the, the vegetarian thing, I did try. It was good. I was very happy doing it, but uh, something, you know, we just have eyes at the front and sharp spiky teeth and it's just a, it's a tricky one to, um, to, to walk away from the old meat. Um, let's continue with the book here before I get too distracted. Uh, Yes. Okay. So they're talking about the fact that protein in the food starts to it will draw off more water from the body than um, than a carbohydrate. So it is probably highly preferable in a way to be eating protein if you could, because you can get hold of the fish and have a very high quality source of meat. There's a lot of people now following the carnivore diet, and they're absolutely making it work with uh, you know basically meat and salt per day. I think that's what Jordan Peterson eats, right? It's uh, a lot of people keeping very fit, very healthy. Now, granted, with supplements, you know, with vitamins, with minerals, that kind of stuff, is that something else that you could put in the life raft kit? Interesting idea. You'd think, okay, well, hang on, let's let's think about what supplements you'd need to have alongside of a, a full meat diet um, coming from things that you can get out of the ocean and overpack the fishing side of it. I don't know. Interesting ideas. Hey, what's in life raft packs is there because it's kind of the minimum required. It's stuff that's been boiled down from Solas, um, but it's a particular way of like looking at solving the problem of life rafts. It's it's definitely based on how much money is available to go into this, definitely based on what uh, size is available, what weight's available, and kind of a general compromise between what people are likely to be able to do you know with the kit that you leave on board but it is like trying to have christmas with the with the the toys from the crackers right it's it's not quite the same these are not the actual tools that do these jobs really really well these are kind of crappy cheap tools that you put in there recognizing that most people won't know what they're doing anyway some decent fishing gear some decent kind of um gaff or 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 spear for someone who's got uh, the skills not to be able to put it through the raft um, a cutting board you know a knife um, 
the, the, the kind of supplements that you'd need to be able to go alongside a, a, a pretty heavy meats diet, it could be rethought and, and perhaps give somebody a better, better chance for survival. But the reality is that where we're at right now, um, you could go to a full meat diet, but it's likely that um, you'd, you'd start to get into a situation where you're just not able to get enough water in to deal with this. And I remember, it, I can see it further down the page here, that uh, they're mentioning Morris and Marilyn Bailey, and they got themselves really quite sick um, eating turtles, thinking that they're way ahead um, and realizing very, very quickly that uh, dehydration was becoming an issue. And I don't want to get like too gross with this because I never know who's listening or what the situation is. But, you know, the, the reality is that uh, a lot of what we consider to be like awful products from from fish, from birds, might be another way of catching meat at sea, is um, that the internals are actually more digestible and perhaps offer more than getting into the flesh of the animal. And that's because um, those are softer um, tissues, which can be broken down more easily by your body, so less effort has to go in. And secondly, they're not as densely protein-based, so you're not going to get into a situation where you're having to draw off loads of the water that you just don't have available. Um, you can still get lots of nutrition from the eyes um, and from uh, sucking on the bones and things and not get into an issue where you're going to you know, water, de water um, debt on account of the protein you're taking in. So inside the life raft, they have a... Um, a little block of high energy carbohydrate you know in your wildest dreams you want it to be something like kendall mint cake which if you've never had kendall mint cake imagine looking at the um the ingredients and for every 100 grams there's 110 grams of sugar it's that kind of thing plus mint that's the only ingredients in kendall mint cake kendall is in cumbria in the uk and they're famous for this incredibly uh sugary um well, it's it's basically just caster sugar, I think, set into molds with a bit of mint flavor added. But it's incredible in an, in an emergency because it's just instant sugar. That's what you want it to be in there. It's not. What it is, and it, it says it correctly, it's uh, imagine dried porridge where you've somehow like pounded it into a, a cake, like one of those fiber fuel logs that you get for a wood burner. It's just like... Uh, it, it's it's like balsa or something not balsa not balsa what i mean like mdf that like really soft breakable like chewing on mdf in life raft like you think things were bad they might leave you some party hats in the life raft no it's just this awful thing that you have to eat again psychologically a low point when people realize this is the food that we have to eat right so um, having a plan with the food, having a plan to hunt, having a plan to um, somehow augment uh, this uh, very, very minimal subsistence level of food you're going to get is a, a good idea from the start because a couple of meals of that and you're going to have a mutiny. Um, it says plankton can be caught using an improvised net made from a pair of stockings. We were talking about that with Eve's Parlier, absolutely. Um, plankton, it'll, it's just like eating um, jello that hasn't set properly. Um, but there's huge amounts of nutrients in there. Again, not necessarily as, as protein-y, if indeed such a word exists, as the flesh of uh, a turtle or a, uh, a fish. You might think you've really won when you've got something like a turtle, but in the end it might be that the blood is the product that you use from it and then dispose of the rest um, because everything else is going to have a negative effect on you. Um, barnacles, it says, will grow on the bottom of the life raft. And it says that the meat can be extracted and eaten. It can. You can also cut your fingers, which then can get in infected and a little uh, seal, so a little cut that won't ever um, seal up. So be cautious because uh, you're going to get very little from them. And if you start getting too, uh, too, too cut by them, then that's a, a, an issue. You can get infected. But uh, also do try and clear the bottom of the raft, at least around the bit where you're getting in and out the, uh, the, the, the entrance, because having an instant where you scrape your front of your body particularly over that going in or out of the life raft can leave you with a number of deep uh, cuts from barnacles and they are absolute buggers for getting infected so clean them off if you can get some meat out of it great be very cautious you don't get uh, cut fish uh, cut fish cut fingers doing it fish fingers is what i'm thinking of um fish can be caught it says using a harpoon spear or gaff or by hook and line that's just like a statement out there in the in the uh, middle of nowhere. Yes, they can, but you don't get a harpoon, a spear or a gaff in a life raft uh, first aid kit or, or, or equipment kit. Rather, um, you get a hook and line. Now, this is definitely an area where you can put your own gear in there. And if you have any knowledge about the, the hunting of fish, which is what we're talking about here, um, then you should apply that to putting a decent kit together into the life raft when it's packed um, so that... Uh, 
you know you can you can get on with that task and know the equipment that you've got available because the stuff that's in there is crap and uh god help you if you actually got a decent sized fish on the end of it because i think it would straighten the hooks and snap the line before you'd actually got it onto the boat so um that is definitely an area where you know there's no fishing gear you're going to put in there realistically that's going to like take up a lot of volume you only need lines to jig over the side but making sure that you know the equipment that you've got can give you a massive tactical advantage in the task of hunting for food which is at the top of the page it said here um, catching food boosts survivors emotional and physical well-being so you can directly affect the emotional and physical well-being of your future selves and your future comrades if you ever end up in a life raft by making sure you know how to fish because uh goodness knows um you know if you go into a life raft and it's like the first day do you fish on the first day I think you do, don't you? Because you've got to give that 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 lift, that uh, that uh, emotional lift to folks. So you're talking about if you're in the life raft and you're in there any more than about the end of the storm plus 12 hours, then you're going to be starting the, to to get food in. So um, if you're ever going in a life raft, unless you're immediately getting rescued, this is something you need to know how to do. If you've first time you ever tried to catch a fish and you don't realize that there's a difference between where the fish looks like it is and where the fish actually is it's going to be pretty hard to get that first meal isn't it so yeah learn this stuff if you can let's go down the page a little bit further it says an improvised spear can be formed by lashing a knife to a paddle steve callahan included a spear gun in his grab bag but if you do the same take care not to puncture the raft absolutely but uh you know Let's hope that you're sensible enough not to fire a spear gun <laughs> into the life raft because it's uh, it's not like National Lampoon's going a life raft. If the life raft gets a hole in it, you die. So don't do that. You, you can't be casual. Every action... I th well, okay, let's start further up the decision tree. The things that I decided to do when I'm out on a boat at sea on my own, like you know, soloing that 80-footer from the UK to, to Iceland, that's done on the basis that every decision I'll make... I carefully weigh up what's the potential outcome of everything. It could be crossing the galley. It could be picking up a knife to cut the vegetable that's in front of you in a storm, you know, when you're making your, your food. It could be um, nipping on deck to just adjust that line. You didn't put your life jacket on. Like every single one of these decisions has to be like thought through. So if you're in a position where you're in a life raft and you're delving into the um, the grab bag and you pull out the spear gun, then like jokingly, high at somebody and fire it and put it through the side of the life raft you know darwin awards are available for this kind of stuff so um be smart know what the equipment you've got but also maybe again take that opportunity to put extra stuff in the life raft if you can the life raft cost you thousands of dollars and every time you get it uh serviced it costs you hundreds and hundreds of dollars um so why not make sure there's equipment in there that could actually be useful um flying fish it says may also land on the raft uh morris and marilyn flying fish are good there's a lot of bones in them they're kind of like a mackerel or something like that they don't need much heat in fact they're they're quite oily but um you can just kind of gnaw on them um as as it comes all of this of course is sushi so no issue at all um i will i will help you out with something that could be a real freaked out moment for you in the life raft i'm going to help your future emotional well-being here this is free um I once got hit, uh, I think on the head actually, by a flying fish that came over the side deck of the boat in the Atlantic. And um, it hit the deck and uh, flapped around on the side deck a little bit. And then I realized like its tongue had come out. I was like, what the hell? And then as I look at it, I realized that the tongue had legs <laughs> and was its own independent being. And I was freaking out. So I kicked the fish over the side of the boat and took the thing and took a picture of it and then threw it over the side of the boat, but realized during my manipulation of it to take the picture, this is its own creature. This is some kind of parasite, some kind of like hanger on and found out later that indeed it's it's uh, like, oh, can I have to look it up on the computer now? Hang on, I'll pause so you don't have to wait while I look up its name. Okay, I'm back. It's Look, I'm going to give you a very honest health warning here, right? If you're eating a meal or in some kind of situation where... <laughs> you don't want to hear something gross you need to go forward i'll make sure it doesn't last any more than a minute there's just two taps on the 30 second ahead button on your podcast app okay get ready i'm gonna give you a bit of time and i'm gonna tell you about this thing okay you done it right it's called the tongue eating louse this thing the pictures on uh, wikipedia are not good and i know wikipedia is not a very you know 
honourable necessarily uh, honourable method of getting information, but I don't think that they've got a conspiracy to um, twist the facts about the tongue-eating louse. It enters the fish through the gills. The female attaches to the tongue, while the male attaches to the gill, uh, to the gill arches rather, beneath and behind the female. Females are eight to twenty-nine millimeters long, which is 0.3 to one point one inches long, and uh, Males are about 7.5 to 15 mil, which is like a third to a sixth of an inch. What a terrible <laughs> decimalizing imperial measurements never works out well. Um, it's like five eighths. These things, the males are five eighths and the females are, what do we say? The females are an inch and a sixteenth or something. All right, so the parasite severs the blood vessels in the fish's tongue, causing the tongue to fall off. It then attaches itself to the remaining stub of the tongue and the parasite itself effectively serves as the fish's new tongue. <laughs> oh, no. So you can imagine that um, it was, yeah, I guess it was just about an inch long. So I get hit on the head by a flying fish, which is all, you know, which is assault. Let's be honest. I was already deeply offended by the fact that the ocean had decided to do this to me specifically. And um, and the fish is there on the deck. Then I realized, jeepers, like part of the fish has come off. That's unusual um, in the <laughs> in the beginning. And then you realize that the bit that's come off has got its own legs. Like, so <clears throat> yeah, have a look online. Have a see what that's about. Oh God, can we even get back to what we were talking about here? Um, it's going to be a tricky one, but I'll try and make it happen. But flying fish, oh yes, thank God. Um, they uh, will just land on the raft. Um, so, yes, I'm helping your emotional well-being that you find out about the tongue-eating louse now before you start to tuck into your first yummy flying fish on the raft. You're welcome. Um, Morris and Marilyn Bailey adapted the safety pins in their first aid kit to make fish hooks. And on average, they landed 40 fish a day. 40 fish a day? Good Lord. Wow. Great. OK, well, if you're into fishing, um, I would do what they did and take a trip on a small inflatable boat for 117 days uh, before getting picked up because the fishing sounds wonderful. But then you end up like kind of poisoning yourself with protein, which is the problem. Um, Alain, Alain Bombard. This is Dr. Bombard, which we read his book over on the Mariner's Library, which is also enjoying lots of increased uh, listenership at the moment, which makes me very, very happy. He drifted across the uh, Atlantic. I think every time I tell a story about this, his raft gets two feet shorter or two feet bigger. Look, it was a rubber raft and uh, he was eating the fish that he caught over the side. His hooks were created from a bone found just behind the gill of the Dorado fish. Commonly in books, uh, the kind of books I'm reading on the Mariner's Library, they'll call that the dolphin fish, which can get into problems. I remember reading one of the books. It was called 15,000 Miles in a Catch. And they were talking about the fact that all the sailors loved eating um, <laughs> dolphin dolphin balls. And I was like, what? Like, come on. And you think like, well, it must be like fish fingers and not actually, you know, the fingers of fish. And if you're in China and you have fish balls, they're not actually fish balls. But no, horror of horrors. I discovered it was actually um, from the actual dolphin, the mammal, <laughs> not the fish. So horror of horrors. But uh, normally, yes, in old books, they're talking about dolphin. They're talking about Dorado fish. And that would be fish balls. <laughs> but those boys, where were they going to? They were going to the Kogulian Islands to hunt for seals in like the uh, eighteen, was it the late eighteen hundreds? Oh, the adventures these people had is absolutely unbelievable. Can you imagine sailing from France in a in a wanna to the Kogulian Islands to stay there for a couple of years to hunt seals to make all the casks from the wood that you fell there, uh, learn how to make casks, make casks and then put all the whale, uh, sorry, the seal oil into those casks and then go and sell it. And if anything happens to that load when it's on board that ship at the end, the entire like three years of your life is gone for nothing and you die horribly in life raft. <laughs> it's like those are risks that people don't often take these days. These are different kinds of folks. So um, yes, but watch out when you're ordering fish balls uh, in various different parts of the world. Initially, lures can be made from silver paper. Absolutely. After that, most survivors, and we talked a little bit about the fact that aluminum foil could be useful for all kinds of things. Um, whilst you're in that drawer, um, do remember to bring out the ceram wrap or the cling film, depending on uh, which part of the world that you're living in. The uh, aluminum foil, we said, can be made into like football size, loosely crushed balls of, of foil tucked inside garbage bags that you brought with you. And that's some kind of um, 
radar reflector, it might increase your radar cross-section. The other thing that you can do is if you bring the Saram rack, Saram rack is um, sterile coming off the uh, off the roll. And so uh, you can use it for binding wounds and things. And in a pinch, you can basically make yourself a, a set of uh, once only use uh, waterproofs out of it by just wrapping it around your body. At least you'll trap some kind of layer of water against the skin. But um, I've, I've used it before on burns, like large exposed burns on my forearms on boats. And uh, it kept everything underneath very mushy. And I would just let it breathe every day by cutting the saran wrap off and then letting that breathe and set into a nice uh, you know hard scab and then back under the saran wrap for the rest of the day and that way I could tend a, uh, a burn in a method where I was wet as well um, it's very difficult to deal with burns because of course what they might end up sticking to the gauze or bandage that's around them um, so you have special burn dressings that don't allow that kind of uh, um, the adherence between the, the the newly forming flesh and the and the the, the dressing, but uh, if you don't have that or it's just not available to you, Saram wrap per se can can create that kind of uh, sterile barrier um, in an otherwise very difficult environment to get things clean and dry. Um, it won't uh, necessarily keep out all the water, but although you can make it that way that it does, but you do have to let it breathe regularly each day so that um, you know. Other processes can have, you don't want the bacteria underneath it to start going anaerobic because it's going to go horrible, right? So, um, don't, I'm not giving out medical advice, by the way. <laughs> it's just, I'm just chatting. This is for entertainment. Um, what have we got here? Fluid can be extracted from large fish by sucking, yes, the, the bones and eyes. In other parts of the world, you know, eating these parts of the animals is very, very normal. If you're living in China, which I've done for very long periods, um, things that come out of the hot pot. Um, tub would uh, have your grandmother having palpitations if it was in England, right? There's chicken heads and fish heads and bits of frogs and all sorts of things in there. And people just take that as being part of eating meat. Now, you know, I understand that that can be very uh, shocking. Um, but the reality is that's where meat comes from. And it is kind of all the same. And it's just we decided that we're going to have it in nice little white plastic trays with ceram wrap on uh, ceram wrap on it um, and we're not going to deal with the reality where it comes from but the other parts of the animals that you may have to consume at sea um, in a survival situation as we've said before you may get benefit from bits that you wouldn't normally eat um, it goes on I don't think we need to kind of like keep uh, going over the point but turtles um, and seabirds that both have been caught successfully the thing that we need to be able to do does it does it mention here uh, I don't want to double up on things, but I'm going to talk about the fact that you need to know how to dry things. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Okay, so, you know, you can dry things by putting them onto like string, um, cut them into thin strips. And what you're trying to do is like air dry it without it getting moldy. Now, moldy is a real problem on a life raft because um, salt is uh, hydro it attracts moisture and so if it gets at all salty then you're going to get a situation where moisture will be drawn to it it's going to be very hard for it to dry out and avoid mold which is of course the enemy of dried meat you want to avoid mold growing on it if you possibly can there's not much in it that will be a problem but you don't know what uh, is in the air that's uh, that's now growing cultured on your meat so no it probably is fine with a bit of mold on it but it might not be and you're not really in a situation where you can uh, risk any further um, red flags going up so trying to dry things out threading a piece of string through the strips of meat about uh, four inches long and one inch wide bits of meat as we say can be a great source of uh, nutrition but if you have too much of it then you get very very dehydrated so you also be looking at the what would be normally awful product products where you can um, get just as much benefit without um, getting too dehydrated all of which can be can be dried out so you know that's the kind of thing you can go online and uh, read about and not have to necessarily get into the reality of what it is but do something to give yourself some control of the situation because it is crazy the amount of information you have to know um, the difference is that like as you get into the life raft in one version of reality you know what you're doing and uh, you survive and in another version of reality you don't know what you're doing and you die so it's um you know it's it's worth whenever you have a decision tree ahead of you where there's um you know there may be a problem or there may not be a problem and you can act or not act you have a situation where there are four outcomes and one of those outcomes is disastrous for you if there is a problem and you don't act that's a big problem if you if there is a problem and you do act, then you restore the issue. Any version of there's no problem, it doesn't matter whether you act or don't act. But the big problem is if there is an issue and you don't act, 
then <laughs> kind of sucks to be you, right? So if you don't know how anything works in a life raft and you're just out there, then you're allowing a 25% uh, option, which is hugely negative for you to to continue to uh, pose a threat. <laughs> is that is that clearly put? If you don't know this stuff, then there's a one in four chance you just don't make it just because you just don't know what's going on. So yeah, let's, uh, let's keep learning. Uh, methods of keeping cool, obviously stay under the canopy or create shade so that you can stay out of the sun. Rest during the heat of the day and undertake routine tasks in the morning and evening. The heat of the day is a big issue. Again, we talked about the water. Should you be doing a little bit in the morning, a little bit at lunchtime, a little bit in the evening? Maybe not. Um, just being able to drink through that critical period from the height of the sun through till like four or five o'clock in the afternoon. That's the bit where you want to be mentally um, in your most zen point so you don't start just flipping out as you get uh, slowly baked inside the life raft. Uh, cool the raft by wetting the canopy. Uh, yeah, because it'll evaporate off and uh, help very much with uh, with the temperature inside the the uh, the the space inside the life raft, um, and keep your clothes damp. Regularly rinse them in the sea to prevent a buildup of salt crystals, which would exacerbate sores. Pressure sores. I'm not sure if you've ever had them or been around people that have them. Um, it's dreadful. It's a wide open wound on the on the side of your body, wherever it might be. Normally buttocks, um, any part that's in in constant contact with something. In definitely including the inside of life raft steve callahan in his book he talked a lot about the fact that he was buffeted terribly by um sharks and and dorados underneath the uh underneath the raft and um that they then started to like cause bruising and all the rest of it and pressure sores i think he avoided that pretty much trying to stand up as much as possible on boats at sea and in life rafts is probably a good way to do things um you you keep your core much stronger you keep much more aware of what's going on around you and uh, you avoid having that constant pressure on the body because it's not just like sitting in a chair where you're essentially unmoving. You are in constant motion uh, relative to the boat, which means that the pressure is moving around constantly on your butt or however you're sat on your back. And um, it's just rubbing whatever's the, the clothing that's up against the skin all the time. So if that goes on too long, you will actually start to wear through the upper layers of skin and have this large exposed um, wound, even if it's the, just a couple of top layers of the skin, like it's a wound, right? It doesn't matter if you've got a small hole in your waterproofs or a big hole in your waterproofs, it's a hole. If you start allowing bacteria into the body, particularly in warm environments, um, you're not going to die of uh, the shipwreck. You're going to die of like secondary effects in the life raft because you weren't able to um, maintain yourself properly. So um, making sure that the bigger salt crystals are being regularly broken down and washed away and that you've just got like slightly damp clothing with no crystals in them is better than having absolutely dry clothing with loads of crystals which are slowly grinding away <laughs> grinding away your skin we could have guessed that right but um it's, it's worth saying because people don't realize they just think everybody is uncomfortable and that's just how it is it's like the the frog being slowly boiled in the pot of water they just think well this is how miserable we have to be it's like no with a little bit of management actually this can be Okay, I got to say the picture for this one, Methods of Keeping Cool, here in the book, she looks like she's in a rave in uh, Ibiza, and then that person's just been cut out and put in a life raft. She's got like a cup above her. I guess she's dousing water down over her head or something, but it just looks like she's having the best time ever. So it doesn't have to be all miserable in a life raft, you know, <laughs> but it probably will be. Oh, this is a good piece of advice here. It says, in hot, calm weather, reattach the sea anchor to the entrance side of the raft, so that the wind blows into the raft. Well, there you go. That's uh, that seems pretty pretty logical. What have we got? I think there's only a few bits left here. Yeah, during the day, deflate the inflatable floor and sit directly on the raft floor. Reinflate it at night to prevent getting cold. De you know, depending on where you are, it, it just be aware that you've got this ability to move further away from the ocean or closer to it. The ocean is going to remain at that temperature, whatever it is. So you are coming down to that temperature or it's helping keep you warm. But uh, either way, you can get a little bit further away from it. But the, the uh, floor, um, the, the bellows, the, the parts that you're going to use for that mechanism. Again, most of the time with these things, they are built by the uh, cheapest contractor. The parts, uh, you know, fit into a budget as well as a requirement for the engineering. And so inflating and deflating things all the time you may find that the the valve or the bellows starts to give you problems so make a wise decision there uh, if you're in a group in a group if you're in a group of two or more rafts spread the survivors equally between them so that each individual has more space to stretch okay good show um 
you know, it says um, don't get into the water to cool down. You may not be able to get back into the raft. Very good point. Um, and sharks and all the rest of it. But uh, and the barnacles on the bottom. But um, moving people from raft to raft. Um, you don't want to do it too often, but there can be benefits of moving folks around a little bit and finding combinations at work. If you've got a larger group of people and they're in separated life rafts and for some reason you are able to be close enough together, be aware of tying the life rafts together in heavy weather because the snatching of the painters will uh, attempt to peel the anchor point on the side of the life raft uh, off and may tear the, the tubes of life rafts. It might create just the most crazy motion as well. If one of the rife rafts is surfing down the front of a wave and the other one's still on the back of the wave. Um, it's going to get pretty wild for everybody inside. But um, uh, you try and move people around to their best advantage from an emotional point of view and a support point of view um, and, and the kind of realities of, uh, I know, family groups or friends or whatever it is. But um, as the person who's in charge of the, the, the people in the water not just one life raft, not the, the boat anymore. It could be a new kind of leader, but somebody somewhere has got to have an overall picture of what's going on to avoid one life raft getting um, really like emotionally into a downward spiral because of the personalities that have come together um, whilst everybody else is having loads of fun. One life raft can get really, really quiet and everyone's getting uh, closer to the edge because um, they're, they're talking themselves down. So watch out, move people about as you can. Um, Getting it so that they're equally spaced out could be advantageous somehow, but also maybe there's ways of uh, moving people around that are intelligent that uh, give everybody a greater chance of surviving, which is the objective, of course, of the, the leader of the people in the water. Um, so to summarise, really, the whole of Chapter 7, which we've been going through um, over quite a few podcasts here, but no apology whatsoever, but um, we just have to reach back in our minds. In this chapter in the book, over the last four or five podcasts, we have talked about only leave the vessel as a last resort, usually only if it sinks or catches fire. In cold water areas, always wear a life jacket when on deck or in the cockpit. If not wearing a life jacket, don one as soon as possible since boats can sink or burn very quickly. Oh, yes, they can because they, on the whole, these days are made of plastic. And plastic takes a little while to get going, but once it gets going, it likes to burn. Uh, muster the crew and check everyone is there. You know... <laughs> I, I haven't done this for a very long time, but one thing you can do is um, allocate numbers to people and um, have them then call off those numbers uh, when they go into the water. It's a bit tricky if you're just teaching it to them as they're getting into the life raft because they've got other things on their mind. If it's something they already know from the, you know, the beginning of getting on board the boat, the problem is that in you know Western cultures that I grew up in, People, even as adults, will feel like self-conscious about calling out a number in rote, despite the fact that it's a very, very logical thing to do and there's loads of benefits. If you had a new crew come on board and said, OK, guys, I'm going to give you all a number and you have to say the number back to me and we're going to practice this a few times and that's going to be your number for the period of time that you're on board this boat, people would look at you like, what is wrong with you? And yet, it's exactly what we did with every single outward-bound group for years and years and years and all the big sail training stuff offshore because it is so beneficial. When you're dealing with a load of people you don't know, you can't do names and just, like, recognize who everybody is. If you're going out on a 40-footer and there's eight crew on board, like, are you going to definitely know the crew names of everybody on board and they're there this week and they're not there that week? And have you got 11 on board? You've got 10? You've got 8? Have you got... it? Just give them numbers. But I do understand that that's probably not going to happen. But <laughs> look, in a perfect world that none of us sail in, everyone would know a number. They could just call them off. You could do it in the water. You could do it in the life raft. You could, number three is missing. Okay, cool. Let's go and find it. Okay, cool. He's here now. Yeah, but just trying to call out, is everybody here? And then hoping that like internally they're going to work out. Oh, this this thing came up on my um, uh, computer screen the other day. And I thought I'm going to get this phrase into this podcast somehow. It was fatal internal exception. Yeah, I, I don't know if that applies to this, but I feel like it does. Your group will suffer a fatal internal exception um, if you ask them to work out themselves if everyone's there in the middle of the night with everything going sideways after they've just come off a boat in the middle of the night. They'll just be like the spinning wheel of death um, if it, it, in, in your crew's eyes. If you can ask them to go through a number sequence and then you can like work out between you if one of the numbers is missing, that's probably where you're at in terms of you know processing power at the moment where uh, you face your greatest challenge. So bear it in mind, you know, it's not going to happen, but we could do it, couldn't we? Uh, make sure all the crew and passengers are prepared to abandon ship. Yes, um, 
what can you say about that? Um, they're not they're not prepared for what's coming next. But if they're wearing something that's uh, you know looks like a life jacket, that's good. If they've got um, waterproof clothing on, they don't have cotton underneath. Like, please, madam, put down your denim jacket and take on this uh, this Helly Hansen uh, <laughs> thermal underwear that I've got here for you. You know, do what you can. But they're going to make sure they've got something warm on, that they've got uh, a head torch with them, that they've got uh, some part of the equipment that you can be taking to the life raft, that they have not brought anything spiky or silly or their luggage with them. Like you can do a bit of that. Um, it is the responsibility still of the captain to make sure everybody gets off the boat safely if they are able to exercise that duty. Um, but either way, look at each other, a bit of a buddy system and just you know, help folks out. Some people, when things go wrong, they're like the deer in the headlights. And um, if you've been close to it before or you've been in tricky situations, certainly, as we've said before, first responders and uh, military, um, the muggles don't know what's going on when everything starts going sideways. So you can just help out a little. Um, get together the grab bag and items on the grab list and anything else that might prove to be useful. Yeah. And don't allow yourself to just go and grab anything that in that moment seems useful as you might end up with a really weird load of, I got all the toothbrushes, um, have, have a list of things that you're going to grab as well. And then just follow that. You want to be doing old things in new situations, right? You don't want to be doing new things um, in new situations because it'll probably go wrong. Um, people, I'm sure, have taken some pretty useless crap into the life raft and left lots of good things on board. Um, if you have to enter the water, stay together in a huddle if possible, but be cautious of others' intentions. <laughs> it seems, again, this kind of like passive-aggressive English uh, sort of uh, dark theme. It's a bit like Blackadder writing a, a sea survival handbook. Others intentionally pickpocket you whilst you're uh, huddling together in the life raft. I think it's the fact that um, uh, people may get hyper-stressed and they may try and climb on top of you uh, or indeed, you know, have have some cruel intention towards a person that would put them in the water i guess maybe you could argue that certainly lots of uh, commanding officers that have taken crews into the water historically have uh, not uh, <laughs> not been in a boat with comrades they've been in, in the in the boat with people that were very keen to kill them so uh, it, these uh, these wild passions can come out when people of course are faced with the existential threat of the end of their existence if time allows if time allows drink water and take anti seasickness pills <laughs> yeah and in my version of it eat everything in the fridge that's uh you know just chowing on like a, a big chicken carcass just bah, eat everything you can because what's coming next might be totally dreadful and you're going to need to use some pretty uh old-fashioned uh, instincts to get through so eat what you can when you can uh sleep whenever you can going into the life raft and having a little sleep might be exceptionally good might be almost impossible to make happen but even clocking out for a minute might be enough to just reset you and, and give you a clearer mind if you can get food on board before you go take those uh, anti-seasickness pills so you do not empty your stomach into the life raft rendering it a biohazard that's great um take water and with you whatever you can but drink whatever's left in the tanks and uh yeah do take what take anything from the boat that you can because when it's gone you know, things are getting pretty bleak tie the life raft painter to the vessel before launching yeah launch the life raft to the lure of the vessel yeah try to stay dry absolutely very very important that it's very different experience being uh in in that kind of situation dry as opposed to wet um i can imagine because the only time i've ever done it for that uh, charity thing i was definitely wet and it was miserable so i can only say that that don't do that so dry perhaps is the way forward if you have to enter the water do so as slowly as possible to minimize cold water shock and the involuntary gasp that comes which can then introduce uh, seawater into your lungs unexpectedly at the very first moment at the 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 emergencies uh, happening and then later you have problems with secondary drowning because your lungs are being irritated by the flora and fauna in the seawater which is now starting to get infected and mess around with the alveoli in your lungs so you start to get pulmonary edema fluid in your lungs and you die of secondary drowning in a life raft because you had an involuntary gasp when you went into the water so you cover over your nose close your mouth hold your life raft uh, your life raft your life jacket down jump into the water and then no seawater in your mouth if you could possibly help it what's next it says uh, the strongest and fittest should enter the raft first to help the less able aboard yeah and also you know if you've got someone that's quite big that's in the water particularly someone who's got extra body weight you're gonna need to have more people in the life raft so that that you can pull them up um but they also prevent are basically uh they have more inertia 
um, it is going to be harder for you to push them down into the water as you go up the ladder. So if you want to help somebody to get into a life raft, you can definitely pull them in. But also if you've got somebody big who's below that they can push against, um, the bigger the better. And then you can maybe give them a, an extra boost up just by the fact that it's hard to move you in the water. So um, definitely have the strongest and fittest uh, on hand, but don't overuse them. And be aware of the fact that a lot of uh, middle-aged men still think they're the strongest and fittest and actually are not. And are actually more likely to go in some kind of cardiac failure or blow a, <laughs> blow a muscle somewhere because they start raunching on things like they're 21 and now they're 51 and actually that doesn't work quite the way it used to do so um, identify different people different tasks as we get older we get smarter we've got the the smarts we're meant to know this stuff and we burn up the young people <laughs> getting our lazy asses into the life raft uh, as required that's how it works out in sailing the you people go at the front we're going to stand at the back and drink coffee and go sailing i don't know what you people are doing at the front i can't remember that far back um, get as many people as possible out of the water. Don't be like Rose in uh, the Titanic there. A poor old uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. I always felt bad for him after that. Um, he thought he was onto a winner with her, but clearly she had other thoughts and uh, was very keen to get, get rid of him. So um, easily could have fit on that door. It would have made all the difference. Um, they could have had a very happy conclusion to that uh, because, of course, the guy that she was with disappeared. So, you know, I'm just saying there was another alternative. I watched that movie, the Titanic movie, in Keswick in the UK uh, in whatever year it came out. And uh, those, uh, certainly in the 90s when we saw it, they were still on reels, right? I guess that's still how cinemas work. You actually have a projector, but there's like three reels for a long film like that. And they played the reels in the wrong order. So we watched the first bit and there was like this massive jump where it's like in a completely different part in the film, we're like, okay, maybe this is some weird artistic thing that's going on here. And then the, the ship went like, was going towards its end before they brought up the the lights and said look i'm sorry we paid the reels in the wrong order you've missed like one hour of the film so like, we all got the free opportunity to go back and watch it again the next night so you know <laughs> i did all of my learning on how to uh, be a, a sailor by watching things like captain ron titanic uh, master and commander i've learned so much Yes, and you learn all sorts of useful things on this podcast, right? Let's, what else we got here? Get as many people out of the water. Yep, said that. When writing a capsized raft, put your hand above your head to create airspace under the raft. Follow the line out to the edge of the raft. Did it mention that previously? That's absolutely true. Look, if you're uh, under the raft and you just push up with your hand, the floor will go up a little bit. So you can make an air, air pocket for yourself. If it rolls over on top of you, just keep your hand out. It'll push you down a little bit, but there'll be space underneath. And then follow one of the lines and it'll take you out to the edge of the raft. The, the worst thing is don't freak out and start taking on water at that moment because uh, all is lost. That's an easy one. But um, I don't think that's necessarily the most important thing to know here. After boarding the life raft, remember, cut, stream, close and maintain. So you've got to cut that... Um, cut that that painter try and get as much of the line on board the boat as you can you've got to stream your epurb out behind the uh the, the life raft and stream the sea anchor you've got to close up the front of the uh, the life raft any the apertures which are open remember it's got that little snorkel as well you can stick your head out through and then maintain the life raft get onto your uh, regimen of whatever's going to happen you're going to be sponging the life raft you're going to be looking out the windows you're going to be you know planning your your next mission whatever it is but you're going to have some kind of thing you're doing which moves towards the positivity of the crew uh, emotionally and physically and then look for the long term because getting water and getting food needs to start right at the very very beginning um, make sure everyone is okay collect the sharps you remember machine gun terry in the corner there with his violin case check equipment and maintain the raft look after wounded casualties you know, one thing to bear in mind here is that if you're more than two hours from primary care, then you're in a very different world of like first aid. You're in the kind of first aid that needs to go into the next bit where you start maintaining somebody um, using very basic methods like CPR, like putting things into holes they may have so more doesn't come out. Like, you know, you haven't got much and you're going to have to try and maintain this other live person. It could get um, pretty, pretty... Uh, 
it could get pretty emotional. It could get pretty real. And uh, you need to be mentally, mentally ready for that. If you get the opportunity, the Woofer course, the Wilderness First Responder course, is an excellent opportunity. It's a 40 hour course and it starts to give you an opportunity to see how to do triage in a complex situation, how to recognize injuries that might not be necessarily so obvious, like a broken pelvis or what have you, how to keep notes, how to, you know, observe what might be going on within somebody by external uh, 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 symptoms but obviously way below what a doctor knows but a lot more than the average person knows and can really help you get ahead um, uh, in, in the immediate care of somebody who could perhaps be saved by immediate intervention but you have to be realistic about where this can really go you're on a boat it could be days before anybody turns up if you're in a life raft situation even if the boat's working out okay and you've got an injury it could be days until you're able to get to another vessel and even then transferring to the other vessel could be awful so the entire situation is one where you know we we ask people to get um, safety at sea courses and i think sometimes people see that as a a, a fine they have to pay rather than a, a fee um, getting good medical uh, training is absolutely essential because it uh, it helps you also in in everyday life you know you want to be a uh, a responsible citizen you want to be helpful to those around you you want to be able to look after those who are dear to you and you want to be a react and 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 have uh, tactics and strategies available if indeed uh, things go a little bit off the uh, off the rails at sea or ashore and knowing the basics of how human bodies work and how to deal with medical situations how to emotionally get over your own reaction to it and and deal with people at end of life situations this is a good skill set to have for anybody and not just sailing when they ask the question do you have um, first aid training you should see that as something that you can proudly say yes i do and you really know what you're talking about i i don't think it's to everyone's advantage to like start studying medicine like a doctor but the wilderness first responder courses which are available all over the place um there's more money to be paid out for that but it's good money um and it's uh it's something that could have a, a, a an effect a, a create a change in your life create a change in other people's lives which is fundamental um, so have a look at that if you haven't ever thought of that before yeah wilderness first responder courses uh, very very useful the other one that uh, you can have a look at uh, if you want another like hard skill set which is super useful on the boat is the Australian surf lifesaving training um, in Australia the people that uh, man the beaches uh, with the red and yellow caps on are highly trained uh, lifeguards and they're specifically trained for open water and uh, it is a different skill set to lifeguards that are in pools right because one of the things is you have a lot more endurance. You got a lot, know a lot more about towing and uh, and boat operation and uh, different methods of getting people out of the water and dealing with uh, the fact they may have a lot of water inside them and CPR uh, on a surfboard, which is kind of like surf uh, uh, CPR on the side deck of a boat at sea, and then the 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 care of the person who's been in a, a drowning situation until the um, the ambulance or the police or the whoever it is the first responders that are coming to provide uh, initial care. So. For us on board the boat at sea, that's about the closest parallel you're going to get to the situation we're in, which is always some kind of open water, semi-drowning, uh, difficult to provide care uh, kind of situation and away from it, primary medical care. So the Wilderness First Responder is definitely more about learning how to keep the pumps running and keep all the bits inside and keep someone safe and, and well for a protracted period of time until you can get to primary care the surf life-saving australian surf life-saving rescue deals with the exact rescue of people from the exact issue we have which is people going into the water so they're, they're two good hard skill areas to uh to focus on which is outside of the normal um sail training uh training that you'd be asked to do but um definitely worth considering so let's finish up this list here it says uh yeah look after wounded casualties so we talked about woofer keep an eye on the quiet ones definitely true sometimes the quiet ones are the ones that are most injured they're the ones that are most freaked out they're the ones that can bubble over into being your biggest problem in terms of violence and things going on inside the life raft so um, talking to everybody regularly going around and chatting with people touching base with them you know kind of creating new connections and, and new um uh, uh tasks for people to do and uh little even little social events like a, a, a song or something sounds trite and uh and, and a silly trope here but um can really lift the spirits of people that are in a dire situation so keep an eye on the quiet ones and try and draw them back into what's going on um if that's possible if they're injured obviously you've got to start dealing with the injury um, activate the EPUB or the PLBs that you have on board, the personal life-saving beacons. And if within range of shipping, use the SART or flares. 
Um, the search and rescue transponder, not many people have got a search and rescue transponder as a separate unit on board the boat. That directly sends a message which, uh, the, the, well, it doesn't send a message. It reflects back the signals from the radars used on all commercial ships, right? It's a very, very useful piece of equipment. It's not something that most people have on a yacht at sea. If you're crossing oceans and you're going to go into the life raft, you probably should get one. A search and rescue transponder, it runs for a very long period of time, much longer than the EPUB, and it's able to give a, a highly useful piece of information to uh, vessels that are immediately around you, which helps them to find you. And that is super important. Remember that the EPUB is sending out a signal that's going to a satellite, and then that satellite has to travel to the next place where it can see a base station and pass on that message. So the ship at sea has been told where you were last reported. That's not necessarily where you are right now. Even if the last report was an hour ago, you're not there anymore. You're drifting around in some combination of the effects of windage and uh, the, the hydraulic lock and the drag of the sea anchor and whatever's going on in your particular situation. So they're trying to find you. They know roughly where you are. If you've got something on board that will help them to identify you in the most immediate method, um, go for it. Because the big ship... Um, Radars will ping like 48 miles. I'm not sure they're necessarily going to pick up some kind of uh, uh, radar reflector that you're going to hoist, but they may well pick up a SART because that's exactly what it's designed to do. Pick up a radar signa signature and then ping it back with lots of um, amplification and send a big like message for a radar screen on a merchant ship saying, here I am. So if you haven't considered that before, have a look at a SART. If the ship is in sight, then you're able to use your... If you can see the bridge of the ship, then you can use handheld flares. Um, if you can't see anybody, remember though, it is still worthwhile at the beginning of the emergency putting up a couple of um, uh, red rocket flares and then at least you've done that, right? There might be somebody who's within 30 miles of you who can see that flare who suddenly knows to change course. I've had my own experience doing that. I, I outlined that in one of the previous podcasts. Um, two red flares had me move through that area a couple of hours later where that emergency had happened. And although the vessel had sunk and the crew had been rescued and they were on a boat that was then moving ahead of me, I had no further VHF communication or, or any other idea of where they were located and from two red flares I managed to pass within a horizon of them within five miles of the place where it happened just by the angle of it and uh, and basically okay wheel over now and then I think it was this far and then take a, a guess as to when to wheel over again and go north as it was we were heading towards Bermuda and within those two flares gave me enough information to get there three hours later within one horizon so Putting up a couple flares, even if you can't see anybody, definitely good uh, at the beginning for emotions and for and for, for the, the spirituality of the crew. I don't mean God, I mean feeling like you may survive that kind of spirituality. Um, also, uh, you know, there's no point dying with the with the flares unfired. It, that would be very, very silly, right? So some go out at the beginning and then uh, if you see anybody, put some more out. And if things get really desperate, put some more out again. But um, definitely get them all over the side of the boat before uh, you close your eyes for the final time because that just would be super irritating to, uh, to, <laughs> to discover there was quite a few boats and they were quite close. You just didn't use the life raft. So you didn't use the, uh, the flares properly. Um, set up the freshwater collection and what does that say? Calculate the allocation of rations. Yes, yeah, so we talked about that uh, quite extensively, making sure that you're getting water um, collected as soon as possible. Um, if you start to get too dehydrated, your ability to work out how to problem solve collecting water will decrease and then you'll be in another kind of pickle, which is um, you can't work out what it is that you have to do. It's interesting that they say that um, deep sea divers who do like welding and are down on nitrox mixed gases at great depth. Basically, they're looking for people that can work when they're like stone drunk, super tired like that. They can work when they uh, have a less than standard um, mental capacity. Um, some people can find their way through even if they are very tired, drunk, stoned, whatever it is, um, or dehydrated, they can still problem solve. That's a skill to be able to problem solve when you're like that. If you've never been like that before, i.e. very dehydrated, you never had to work when you're at the edge of uh, a breakdown from sleep deprivation or whatever, um, you may not have the skill set to be able to manage your thoughts properly, to be able to complete tasks, to be able to save yourself. Okay, does that kind of make sense? Like it's a skill set to know how to operate on the very edge. And if you've not done it before, um, your ability to react um, tactically to the situation around you might be more reduced than you think. So 
look after yourself uh, right from the very first moment that you're in the life raft. What did they say at the beginning of all this, that you jump in and there might be a, a, a temptation to relax when you get in the life raft? Like, I do think so. Okay, quick look here at the next chapter, um, because it's literally just a couple of, just a, a page. I'm going to really condense it because it's the one, as I say, on rescue communication. There's these little cards that go on the back of the toilet door on MCA and SOLAS uh, compliant vessels. I'm just looking online here and they are two little orange and white cards. I think we've probably all seen them either in one big poster or in two small cards. And uh, they are literally called SOLAS 1 and SOLAS 2. It's a, a requirement uh, to have your SOLAS uh, rating, your safety of life at sea, the, the, the uh, set of life-saving um, regulations which were brought in after the sinking of the Titanic. And uh, having the ability for each crew member to uh, ponder the uh, rescue communications they may need to use in the event of uh, abandoning to a life raft or what have you is always uh, provided on the back of every toilet door of the vessels I know. So um, the main thing for the book here is, uh, you know, how much you're going to actually likely be using this, probably not very much. Uh, is this the kind of thing that you can have on a little laminate sheet that you refer to? Absolutely. Um, the thing that uh, you need to understand is that there is a set of signals and the people in the aircraft are going to try and use them. And so if you don't understand what they're trying to say, Mm, that could be very bad for you. <laughs> it's that old thing again, right? So uh, if the plane is circling your vessel uh, and then they cross the bow low ahead of you, rocking the wings, what what does that mean? Okay, it means something. They're trying to tell you to go a particular way. If you're in a life raft, you're not, they're not going to be doing this one. If you're sailing in a boat, they're about to tell you which way you should go because the next thing is the plane will fly over the boat in the direction to go. Like, So if you've got some ability to move around, uh, a plane circling you and then crossing in front of the bow, rocking its wings and then flying over you again in a particular direction. It's trying to make you go that way. OK, if uh, you've been um, involved in some kind of search and rescue operation and the aircraft comes behind you and rocks its wings, that's like they don't need you for the search and rescue operation anymore. You know, it, the thing you should recognize is that VHF communication comes in very handy here because the airplane will have VHF communications but normally aircraft don't they use uh, aviation frequencies but you can buy an aviation frequency handset for use to talking to aircraft above you now if you've never kind of thought about that before or like what would I say to them or you're a bit nervous about how VHFs and radios and what have you kind of work just it's a very useful thing to be able to talk to an aircraft when you're on a boat and you've got an emergency and the piece of equipment that does that is a uh, aviation frequency VHF. So if you're trying to save money, save it on something else because not being able to talk to the aircraft and then not knowing the, the signals that they're trying to give you uh, could all <laughs> end quite badly. So um, those uh, SOLAS uh, 1, SOLAS 2 on the back of the toilet door, um, taking a little bit of time to, to check out what that's about. You know, it's a thing which is very, very visual and it's kind of hard to do in a podcast here, but basically it tells you how you're going to be able to communicate with uh, uh, an aircraft or indeed with people uh, on the shore when you're doing stuff, uh, people with little semaphore and, and lights and what have you. Um, I think go and check that one out for yourself. That's why I said I could burn through this pretty quickly because I know that uh, basically that's when you have to go and look up yourself and find out how to wave your arms and where to place your little lights and what have you to send information to people on boats from the land. Can be useful when you're trying to pick up people in a dinghy ashore if they know that stuff because they can do it all with head torches. But again, no one learns this stuff. So you might know it if they don't know it, as we talked about in the Jargon podcast, um, you, you, you may as well smash your head against the brick wall. It's not going to work. You've got to be able to both speak the same language and um, then maybe you can use it. It's a very good way for them to tell you when you're out in the dinghy where to pick you up. If you haven't remembered to give them a, uh, give you a VHF, they can see the water. They can see the the, uh, the the coral bombies or the rocks, whatever it is under the water. And by dropping a, a, a head torch on the floor and then walking with the other one away from that dropped head torch, they're showing you the direction to which you should head to come in and pick them up. Um, if you don't both read the back of the toilet door, then that will all be, a, of course, a mystery to you. The summary on this one says, in the absence of telecommunications, use the internationally accepted methods of visual communication. So go go and learn them. I guess that's the thing. I don't have to provide every piece of information, do I? That's where this is the uh, 
the, the cliff notes that go with this book. So have a quick look, see what that's about. And if not, get Solas 1 and 2, put them on the back of the toilet door. A waterproof card reminding you of these signals may be part of the Life Raft kit. If it's not waterproof, try and keep the card and other instructions out the water. You may need them later. Wow, it's also like the repair patches that they give you for the life raft. It says, you know, area must be clean and dry. You're like, mm-hmm. Um, we, we did mention at all that they've got that little pocket up above the life raft that you can pop things into. Maybe that's useful on the overhead tube. Understanding the signals given by an aircraft can boost morale. That's important, isn't it? Right? They could be telling you something like, hey, someone's coming for you. But if you don't know how to talk aircraft talk, uh, and don't have a uh, 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 aircraft frequency uh, radio, then you might not get that morale boost, which means we have seen you, help is coming, we will drop a package on our next uh, trip over here. Could be a, a thing that really gets you through the night. Um, if you can't accept the message, then uh, oopsie. Uh, last thing here, understanding shore signals can prevent you from getting into further danger. Well, again, from a life raft, that's not much use, but if you know those signals and you're trying to go ashore in a boat, and the, the crew ashore know how to give them, it can be very helpful uh, on uh, late Caribbean evenings <laughs> when you've all had a bit to drink to avoid running the dinghy onto the reef. But let's not talk about that anymore. Um, look, that's the end of uh, this area we've been looking at, which is abandoning to the life raft. And we had a quick look at rescue comms. Um, I think this stuff is super important. I'm very happy to be able to bring it to you. If you've got any experiences of using this stuff at sea, I'd definitely like to hear if we can share this stuff with each other if we can teach each other and and learn it just gets better and better um, to go into a life raft and have the information that we have gone through in these last four or five uh, podcasts would you be feeling pretty pretty happy that at least you've got the knowledge to operate the equipment and the equipment and that's going to help you be positive which we've said is the most important thing so um, let's try and learn together but uh, if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner um, the five dollars a month there uh, really helps keep these things rolling along it's wonderful to have everybody back on board now having got all the apple podcast people back into the fold thank you very much for the uh, reviews and the ratings people have been giving that's very very important that helps the podcast to develop and uh, and grow and get to a, a wider audience so if you can if you've got all the way to the end of the podcast look i think it's definitely time to go and put a review in hey <laughs> okay but wherever you are i hope that you are not in the life raft wherever you are i hope that you are safe and sound and uh, enjoying listening to this and i'll be right back with another one in the next couple of days cheers